This is 15 Minutes of Freedom. I'm your host, Ryan Idell, today coming live from Puerto Rico. Actually, I, I, I'll say a good friend, really, just we've crossed paths so many times. Curtis Naley. Curtis, how are you, my man? Fantastic, man. It's a pleasure being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, of course. So before we jump into all the history that you and I share without even knowing it, really, the depth in which we share it, I like to start out every interview like this with one impactful question. And that is, you're an entrepreneur, you worked for somebody else and then went out on your own. If there was a lesson or something you'd want every startup entrepreneur to know, right, that first year or just plan on jumping in, what would that lesson be? Um, my suggestion for anybody that's uh, going to take that, uh, that jump from um, being a technician to being an entrepreneur, um, the most important thing that you would need to know, in my opinion, would either to be a very a master salesman um, or a master marketer, because uh, that is the hardest thing in, in raising a business from ground zero is either having a person that's capable of making the sales to convert traffic or having a person that can bring in good enough traffic that converts itself. I could not agree more in such a, a brilliant lesson. That's, that's actually part of how our stories end up crossing each other, right? Like, and I know what we've discussed this. Like, Curtis, you and I have had a chance to meet each other face-to-face -face and we we're laughing, right? Maybe three, maybe four years ago that we remember in Salt Lake City, Utah back then. And it was back in my custom clothing days. And you and I were both at different points in our life, right? I, I certainly was at, okay, trying to dig my way out of a hole, basically, myself, fiscally, and, and get my, my ship corrected. Loved what I was doing, but a much different time in my life. What were you doing back four years ago? So four years ago is right when we actually, I made the shift from being um, an entrepreneur, like that, that salesman working for someone else, shifting into actually starting my business. And uh, one of the things that I will compliment you on is I remember distinctively in that conversation, you said one of my favorite things that I think anybody should say to anybody that they want to connect with. And that is simply, how can I help you? And uh, I remember that very distinctively because especially at that point in my life, um, we were just beginning. We had a very few traffic sources and I was pretty much a solo, solopreneur just trying to make stuff work, you know? Yeah. Well, and it was heartfelt, right? That You were starting Lending America back then, right? Mm -hmm. And let's, let's bring everybody into the fold of what Lending America is, what it does, what it specializes in, and some of the things that you could do to instantly help someone that's listening right now. Yeah. So primarily, uh, we focus on really helping individuals start businesses in forms of getting capital for them. Um, and when I say this, I'm not a crowd funder. Um, I'm not a credit repair specialist, even though we offer some great credit repair solutions. We're mainly a company that teaches people how to optimize their credit in a very short period of time and then be able to go out there and get lines of credit that are going to come with introductory periods of 0% for typically about a year or so, which gives them really good capital expansion to get the company off the ground where they're not taking loans from their family members or friends. They're not taking 20% loans from the banks, even if they can get them. It's really just a way to help bridge that gap from immature business to adolescent business where they can get proper funding through the banks. I love that. And Curtis, when, as you touch base on that, if I wanted to be considered for right, that, 
capital infusion, right? That kind of, I'm here in 0% for 12 months. I'm, you know, I'm rubbing my hands together thinking, yeah, what can I do for, for marketing and advertising with, you know, however much cash would come? What are some of the criteria and what's, what are kind of like the low sides and high sides that people could expect as far as uh, amounts to fund even and businesses that you like to help get funded, right? I'm sure it can't be for all of us. Yeah. So, um, in terms of like qualifications of people that we can help, typically speaking, we like to see a credit score at least in that range of about a 650 or so. Um, and that's just because, again, I'm not a, a credit repair company. I, I, it's very difficult for us to handle massive amounts of volume of people with low credit scores. But if you're kind of in that mid-lower range, typically speaking, we can help you get some funding. And for us, it's really we'll fund anybody for as low as five to ten thousand, all the way up to two hundred thousand, which is about the cap of what we could get. That would be in our industry a unicorn. Very, very depth in credit history, very long credit reporting, things of that nature. Um, so that's kind of a, a basic intro. Yeah, and let's let's go through. I'm always curious about the underwriting criteria. Right. And not, not the in-depth, because I know every every case file has to have its own unique proclivities to it. But right, let's assume I'm a, a 680 and I've got a decent, decent report in front of me. What do you look for in the, in the business itself? Right. Because, I mean, you and I have both been involved in some crazy businesses in our time, which we're going to dive into. And every one of them, we could have used more money and justified what we're needing it for. But what are kind of what are the good and OK and the not so good businesses for you? So for us, um, it's really about, uh, I like to work with businesses that have proven concept. I'm not the guy that wants to work with a business that's been running forever and ever and ever. Yes, I have solutions for that. But typically speaking, those companies don't have a hard time getting capital. I really like working with that guy that has got his concept in place. He's sold one or two deals and he needs capital to scale. Um, and our solution works perfectly for that type of entrepreneur. The reason being is because they have concept, they know it's making money, they, they, they have some sales, they know there's validity there. And basically what we can show them is how to get capital to expand a marketing and advertising campaign, um, expand a sales staff or whatever the need for the company is. Well, I love that. And I'm, I'm always curious about how, and we'll, we'll keep eventually getting backwards into our story, but we look at that five, four year ago. What was the light bulb that went off in your brain that said, like, I want to start a lending America. I want to go out and figure out how to get capital for people. Because this is, I, should, I guess I should ask, are you, are you self-funding these deals? Or are you using other banks, other, other types of lending institutions? Well, um, there's two stages of what we do in terms of that question. So primarily on the 0% side of what we do, 100%, that capital comes through the banks. Basically, what we do is we target the right banks based on the right criteria, based on the right credit profile. Um, on our self-lending side of things, we have a very unique product, uh, which we call bridge funding, um, similar to that of real estate, if anybody knows it. Basically, what we'll actually do is we'll use our own capital to pay down someone's debt utilization for them on those credit cards, boost that credit score to where it needs to be, and then we can actually help them not only restructure that debt that they had at 30% interest down to 0%, but now actually have some extra wiggle room to launch the company at the same time. And those deals, I am self-funding. Well, and those would have to be nice because I'd have to assume when you invest the cash in to pay down someone's debt 
kind of already have in the back of your mind roughly what they can get approved for on the 0%. And the minute the 0% comes in, I have to imagine you're making sure you're one of the first in line to get paid back on that on that debt load, plus a little vig on top for the effort and energy you put into it. And you have that they still have the cash there to drive it forward. So you're you're pretty insulated there. Yeah. We were actually the first company that we know of in existence um, to ever start doing those loans. Um, and the reason for that is because there's a lot of risk that comes with uh, paying some guy's credit card debt down that you've never met personally for twenty or thirty thousand dollars at a time. <laughs> yes, and what what's crazy as, as you're listening, I'm going to clue you into something. So I traveled for if it's four months, it's it's eight months, and did some I'll say high ticket sales for an Amazon based company. And this Amazon company taught people how to open up an Amazon storefront and source product and create ads and do all the things that would take to quote unquote be an FBS, you know, powerhouse, right? Uh, and yeah. one of the things that we did when someone would come to the back of the room and wanted more information, right? We'd talk about how much disposable credit they had on credit cards and if it made sense that way. And then we had right back then it was things like capital one would have a 0%, you know, deal that was, a special link through this certain thing. And if you met the criteria, it was like an almost an auto approval for the 0%. And it was, it was, uh, I can't say it was, it was not my brightest time, right? But it wasn't my darkest either. It was, I didn't realize what I was, well, that makes me sound ignorant, but I didn't really realize what I was doing until I got into it and realized what I was doing. And then I got out of it, right? Because for me, it's like, we're holding these, you know, three-day workshops and people are getting tons of value and they're coming to the back of the room and we're helping them out. Then I started looking at the success rate and how many people actually follow through and how many people are making money. Like, man, this is just, this doesn't feel right to me. I got to, I got to step away. And since then, right, the, that particular company, I believe got shut down by the FTC and right. As, as, as so many in that space do, yep. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting, right? You, you've legitimized something that you and I in a past life would have done to, I can't say it was illegitimate, but not done with the highest, maybe moral scruples on my side. I won't project into you. So um, I 100% agree. Uh, one of the things that I, when I started my company, is I wanted to bring the guys that were in the back of the room um, in those three-day workshops to the front of the room. Um, and I wanted to bring it to the mainstream. I didn't want to. Um, I'm really not, I, I don't like funding coaching companies. Our company actually doesn't fund any coaching companies any longer. Um, that used to be how I built my business. And I'm, I'm very happy that I had those connections to build my business. Don't get me wrong, but I agree with you a lot on the success side of things because there's a large difference between someone being pushed into going into business and a difference of someone being pulled naturally to go into business. And I think you have a much higher success rate of those people that are naturally pulled into building a business themselves. And those are the guys that I like to fund. Um, I just like taking uh, unusual product, which instead of just getting a client one Capital One card, what I did is perfect that system. And I perfected it so that way a person now can get eighty dollars or $100,000 of 0% capital which goes a tremendously wrong, long ways, especially when you're in that startup phase, when you go to any bank around the nation and they say, we don't fund startups. So that was really the problem that we were initially trying to solve. And uh, we've done a fairly good job of it so far. Yeah. And I, I want to clarify something because you and I have the same, but also different definitions of coaching, right? I look at myself now, I'm a coach, I'm a mentor, I'm a consultant. 
on myself, I offer a very, very clear 100% money back guarantee service. And I would say I'm in the coaching space. Like I'm very comfortable with that. But you and I actually came from a different type of coaching that is more boiler room, more slam and cham type of coaching. Yeah. And that's actually kind of how you and I crossed paths all those years ago without ever knowing it. And what would you what would you say the differences are, right? I mean, you know enough about me to know not only who I am, but what I, what I offer. What do you think the difference is between a, a me, I'm okay, you can attack me, it doesn't bother me at all, versus what you and I used to do in the past? The, the difference is it's the mentality. Um, it's the mentality of you're out there putting your stuff out to everybody saying, hey, I'm hearing to help. And you're giving tons of free value. On the other option, when you're in a boiler room setting, please understand, man, we, anybody that doesn't know that this is watching this, um, a boiler room is, imagine this, you get a bunch of printed out leads that are on your desk. And you're trained to be a little, a lethal assassin over the telephone. Like, I mean, you can close, the best closures in the world are from boiler rooms. I'll take on any guy in New York, any guy in Arizona, any guy in Utah, the guys in boiler rooms can sell. So you take those guys, you give them this lead set and they, you say, you either pay the bills, you, you sell those leads to survive. And that's when you make this change about, it's no longer about the customer base. It's more about sales and getting those sales numbers higher and higher and trying to break a million dollars in a week than it is about the end customer product and the end customer experience. And those are the two defining separations, right? When a guy is out there being public about it, what he does, caring about his client base and taking care of that client base, you never have issues with FTC complaints. You never have issues with clients really being unhappy. You never have issues with running a proper business. But when you make that separation of we need a, a, a killer sales staff, which don't get me wrong, I'm 100% in support of a killer sales staff. I have one myself, right? Um, but it's about product control on the end, right? It's about those clients if they're unhappy, making sure that you take care of them and fixing the problems. Absolutely. I love that definition. I want to expand upon that just a little bit, right? So my, my listeners certainly know about my hosting days and that we offered hosting on the backside of ways in which people were trained and educated on how to make money online, right? And yep. that was, again, I'm going to hop in my time machine and go back. It's going to be seven or eight years at this point, since that was kind of the foundation for me understanding what I now refer to as direct response marketing, right? I put out an offer and create an instantaneous direct response from the person that's interested in or not interested in what I had to say. And so as someone that used to run offers, as we would call it, Right. I, we became masterful. This is humorous. It's not, I mean, it is, but it's not like we'd sell a product for $97, right. To a, to a consumer. That was kind of the, the front side. That was, you saw something online. You're like, Oh, 97 bucks. That's a great deal. That you as a buyer, as you bought that informational product, which actually in my opinion worked if you would follow the steps, but statistically the people that signed up for the offer, you, know, you had about a 10% rate of people that would actually log in and start to, to learn and train at, at best, no matter what we did. And so instantly that you as a buyer would get passed over to a sales floor, like Curtis is, re, re, you know, referencing. And then you would get an introductory conversation, right? Which we in this industry or that industry called a two-part close, where really what yep. 
in my opinion, what Curtis is doing is this incredible job of investigating your fiscal ability to make decisions, analyzing your pain points, touching them on just a certain way, pulling some ex exclusivity claims to see if you're just the right fit to potentially be introduced to the manager to potentially, if you qualify again, be mentored one-to-one one -one with him and his elite staff. And if you cross through that boundary, right, then Curtis would have, and not him specifically, but someone that could have been in Curtis' position, would have then taken the sheet of paper and had all the details of your life and given it over to a sales manager, would have called you back at a certain time, introduced you to a sales manager. A sales manager is nothing more than just another really good closer, essentially. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and he is putting you through the paces of figuring out just how much cash he can get from you because we would turn that in that industry, what drives it is something called a DPL, dollar per lead. And it was all that mattered is what that lead generated would generate in dollars. And right, not everybody buys the upsells and how that works. And gosh, back in the day, good DPLs were four and $500. So imagine this as you're listening, a thousand, a hundred people buy an offer for 97 bucks, right? And it might cost me 120 bucks to get you to buy a $97 product, realistically. Then Curtis gets a hold of it, well, not him specifically, but someone in his position way back when. This is years and years and years ago. And then he and his team are able to pull $500 out of each lead, which then we get a portion back of. And then his company, well, a company he would work for, would have then made a good portion of money. Right. So that was, yep. that's like dot com bubble. That's just a crazy time where, I mean, I laugh because, you know, when I tell the stories about $50,000 bar tabs in New York and all this crazy stuff that went on, it was like this group of us that could kind of just float around and it felt like print money almost. It was, it was like not real. And the government, I mean, we needed to have a good regulatory. You know. Yeah. Amen. Am I, am I saying that? I mean, again, we're going back in a time machine, seven, eight, 10 years. This is nothing that's been recent. This is nothing that we do now, but am I loosely telling the right version of how that would have been set up and structured? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it was mainly like we got $97 buyer. We then had what we call the process of setting what was known as prospecting, obviously. Setter would go through, gather a whole bunch of information. Then a proper closer would go over and form upfront contracts with the client. Um, that's a sales term if anybody's familiar with it. And then we would close anywhere from on the lowest end was $3,000. The highest end was about twenty. Um, and then when you get into real estate, that's a whole different other bubble because then those you, you were selling hundred thousand dollar deals over the phone and your DPL on leads was like four or five grand. So think about that as you as you're questioning sales abilities, you're questioning right like, can I sell this three hundred dollar widget to whoever it is over the phone? There are tacticians like a Curtis in the world that had gotten to the point that every sheet of paper that's still across our desk is worth somewhere between five hundred and three thousand dollars without ever physically meeting a person, right? Like yep. building rapport over the phone, having an hour, you know, 45 minutes to an hour conversation and really going through a proven scripting process, right? That is always maturing and evolving. And literally, like you said, being a hired assassin, right? I mean, that's because yeah. there's no, back, back then, and I'm sure even now, if that still exists, there's no base salary, there's no guarantee. The only guarantee that you have is you're gonna have leads on the table and you're, you're hungry, you gotta eat. Exactly. It's very, uh, it's very Wolf on Wall Street-esque in terms of sales calls. Um, and that's one thing that 
there, there's part of me that really didn't like that industry. And, and that comes back to, it wasn't regulated. Dude, we were just kids that were taught how to sell on the phone, trying to make money for ourselves, right? Um, and I'm very happy that it has been regulated and there are some people that are trying to do it properly. Um, but it taught me one of the most valuable lessons in my life. And that is before I ever started my business, I knew for point of fact, if I get on the phone with anybody, any human being alive, I don't care who they are, they will purchase from me. Um, it's just a mentality that was ingrained in me for 12 years of working in that industry before I ever stopped into my, stepped into my own space. Yeah. And it's, I love that mindset and it's even, it's fascinating as you and I have put together these pieces. So there was a company that existed that went by the name of Ivy Capital, right? And these guys are, are, are good friends of mine now, but I got into the industry after Ivy Capital was kind of the, the poster child. There was one other group of individuals that um, got busted by the FTC prior to them. And then it was, was Ivy Capital. And they were what a hundred million dollars in revenue, probably at, their, oh, yeah. at least, I mean, probably more all selling over the phone, all doing things this way. And then the FTC comes in and says, well, you know, we're going to investigate this a little bit and we're going to put you guys on timeout. And when they do that, Curtis was not involved in the company at that point, right? But they do that and these, these five owners who, again, I'm friend, very close friends with two slash three of them, right? They, they freeze all their assets. They freeze everything. And two of the guys, two out of the three that I'm referring to, Right, we're conservative. They looked at themselves as business owners. They saved up a bunch of cash, like owned real estate. In their mind, they were doing things the right way. And then our third buddy, right, he was a guy that was like me, like blowing cash at, at the strip club and, and <laughs> all, all types of crazy stuff. <laughs> and I came into this industry on the backside of them getting busted and got to meet them and know them and start to learn from them real time, like what not to do. Because, right, we, the nature of that industry and the nature to me of any marketing was my opinion. I can't say it's factual. If you, myself, and Curtis are all offering comparable product, all we care about is getting that conversion, which means we have to keep sliding this scale on how aggressively we can market to you. You know, and it's, we're all competing for the same number of eyeballs. And so which offer does a little bit better. So we put a little bit more salacious claim on the front side and we have to get a little more aggressive on the phone. And after a period of time, all of a sudden, the, what was a good legitimate product with a great value proposition, the product has stayed the same, but we have oversold what it does in such a massive capacity that there's no way anybody could ever keep up with what it actually does. And so 100%. right now, now, in learning from those men and being able to remember that now, it's so much easier just to not only be honest, but kind of under promise and over deliver. Like it just 100%. It keeps you clean. You don't have to oversell it. There's plenty of money to be made in the world without stepping too close to the edge because it only takes one little gust of wind when you're close to the edge and you're going to fall in the crevice and it's not a good place to be. 180%. Um, it, it's, I look back at that industry and um, it started off in the right mindset. Um, and when more competition comes in, when lead sources get tighter, and especially, please understand, anybody that's looking at this conversation, um, back then, man, we were, we were used to making, I was getting paychecks of $25,000 a week, right? Yeah. Um, like, uh, and when you get used to that type of money and you're a 22-year-old child, 
that literally, I mean, I didn't know anything other than how to sell. You do nothing but waste it. You, I, I don't know. I know very few people that were successful back then that are successful now. All of them that I do know have shifted into different industries and took it, the values and lessons that we learned from that industry. Because that industry did taught me a lot about monetizing data. It taught me a lot about selling data. It taught me a whole lot about the ethical side and what can happen if a product is over-delivered, right? Oversold, over-promised. Um, it taught me a lot about earnings claims and what those are, right? Um, all that fun stuff. And it really helped me put the process, because I'm I've, I've a super blessed individual. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Um, I don't know if I, I struck a lottery 10,000 times when I was born, so... Um, my dad is, runs a carpet cleaning service, and they're all about quality, 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 right? So when I started my business, I wanted to take the things that I learned from that space and ideas and concepts, right? But bring it to a better quality product to a better quality client, right? Not to a 65-year-old nurse that isn't ready to be an entrepreneur, to a 35-year-old guy that's hungry, that has traction and really wants to make a change. That that's that's really what my goal was and kind of my mission statement was to help enough people with the get get what they want so we got I could have an abundance of what I want myself. Zig Ziglar quoted that by the way. Of course. And Chris, I think that's such a brilliant way to state this all as we, you know, drifted down memory lane maybe a little bit further than any of us were really planning on. But it's this thing in which as you're considering your own business or maybe you've started it. It's that old rule. If anything seems too good to be true, it's going to be somewhere, right? I think a good, healthy business now has a 25 to 35% gross in that margin, right? Like depending on a whole bunch of variables and I don't want to generalize things, but in that world, when you could generate leads and make money, like it was falling from the sky and having these 25 and $30,000 weeks, like weeks, not, not months or years, like weeks, from the presentation of reality now, I see how much of that was built on false beliefs because I didn't want to see something different than the money. And now it's like, man, you put something out there and you got a good and solid business and I'll say you're doing a 30% gross in that business and it turns right along and you're growing 10 to 15% year over year. You have an exitable business that has actual enterprise value that is, is really what is, you know, I transitioned from a, back then a 25 year old to a 35 year old. That's all I care about now. It's like, how, how can I stabilize, have reoccurring revenue that's honest and ethical? How do I help people achieve something? And how do I eventually step away and have the business produce capital for me? 100%. That's uh, been one of the driving forces of my life is making that mental shift from being a younger guy that was focused on sales now to being a more tensured guy, I suppose, um, really looking to my driving force today is just to help more people um, because that the direct response to helping an individual is benefits you in so many more ways than anything else. And our, our driving purpose is just make sure our business stays around for as long as I'm alive, hopefully longer, um, helping people start businesses in the proper way because there's too much misinformation out there about guys taking bad loans in businesses, which I don't agree with. Um, guys put, getting pushed into businesses, which I don't agree with. Um, I agree with those people that want to start an industry, 
want to run proper businesses like you and I and want to make proper changes for the client base and help just overall individuals. And I think if the basis starts with that mindset, if we all start with that mindset of helping people and playing the long game, as some people say, right? Being around for 10 or 20 or 50 or 60 years rather than being around for two, what we're going to do is we're going to have a longevity in our products. We're going to make our products better. And we're going to further educate our market sources and educate our client base because uh, there's so much good information out there, so much good information about businesses. Um, there's just not enough people, in my opinion, spreading the right information. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I completely agree, Curtis. And what I find to be fascinating about that statement is if you look at the, the cyclical nature of, to me, the universe, but let alone the business world, you know, nine out of 10 businesses don't make it to the 10th year right now. And the reason for almost every failure is undercapitalization and no sex structure for stabilization for when the economy, I don't say takes a downturn because I don't like that term, but we'll just say stabilizes, right? If we look at the past, you know, nine, 10 years now in our economy, it's been up and to the right. And so by the nature of, if you look at the stock market, if you look at the economy, I'm not doom and gloom. I don't care about the presidency. I don't care about any of this shit that goes on right now. Just logically, there's going to be a stabilization period that comes in the near future in which we're not all seeing exponential up into the right growth. And so you get in this habit of spending more money and doing all these things. And that's where when the good information comes from someone like a Curtis that says, look, like time out, let's look at the business model. Let's see what you really need capital for. Because if you're going out to seek capital because you are taking on water, it's really the wrong time to start to take on capital like that. Whether Curtis can fund you or not, that is not when you want to bring on capital. It's true. <laughs> and so, right, like I love the dissemination of information because the brilliance of what you're sharing, Curtis, is you've been through so many different iterations of so many different businesses and seen so many different cycles. Right in the past, we said 10, 15 years, you've been multiple different sales floors, multiple different ownership opportunities between, you know, a, a credit repair company and a funding company and these different things that you've got your hands into. Share with us some of the things that you've seen, if you don't mind, kind of in that cyclical pattern. And what, not that we have crystal balls and can, you know, know what's coming, but we've certainly, right, we survived the quote unquote crash of 08. Like, no, nobody died, right? We like, we've seen some things that the younger generation, like, if, if you're a 26 year old person right now, you graduated college or didn't go, I don't care. You've never seen something where what you're used to just stops. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. So, um, I mean, the first thing I would say, if, if you're thinking about starting a business right now, you should start immediately. Um, and the reason being is because we're in a very upward momentum right now. And it's, it frankly, is very easy to make money right now, period, plain and simple. Um, that's my opinion. I may be wrong, but I, I feel that it's easy to make money right now, especially. Um, and I think when we have that shift and when it comes down, um, companies that are going to be eliminated are companies that don't have systems and processes and good lead sources and good solutions put in place, right? It, it's going to be a lot of these companies that you're seeing. There's so many of quote unquote influencer or quote unquote guru type of businesses going on right now. And I really feel that a lot of those businesses are going to start fading away and, and going away. And the simple reason for that is because I feel that that sector of our businesses is bloated because 
we live in a society where anybody can pick up a phone and say, hey, this is how I awesome, awesome I am and this is what I do, right? Um, and no harm against any of those people, whatever. If they want to do all that stuff, I fully support anybody getting what they need to get, right? I just feel that when we, when we see a downturn, if we dig a hole straight down, and that hole, we're, we're like niching out our industry, right? We're like, if I brand my company to be the best startup company in the world, and I dig straight down, when, when that restructuring happens or when that pullback happens, that hole is going to cave in. And if I don't have more holes digging, dug all around in a circle, creating other products and other solutions, and I'm not going wide, I have a much larger chance of failure. Um, Grant uh, Cardone, if anybody follows him, is the guy that, that showed me that in all realization because he was like, here, look at my numbers from when I was just in the car space and when we hit 2008, he lost 75% of his business. And now he's like, if I just would have went wider, right? If I just would have went wider, it, I would have survived 10 times, 10 times easier. It would have been such such a better play. So I suggest for people to go wider and start incorporating different products that promote their main product. Like that's one of the things that I've always done in my own company, right? I'm not a credit repair guy, but you bet your bottom dollar, I have access to the best credit repair team that I've ever physically found. The reason being is because it's an integral part of what I do. Just like bridge loans, no one else would do them, so I created them myself, right? It's about solving and creating all these different solutions for multiple problems. So then I think when we have that restructuring, um, one of them or most of them, even if they take a large hit, we're still going to be able to survive and we're still going to be able to keep moving forward. At least that would be my opinion. Well, I love what you said. And I want to clarify something from my standpoint. And I think we say the same thing. I might have, I might have interpreted it differently or I just want to clear it up, at least from how I view the world. I believe, and I believe that you're saying the same thing, starting to dig that hole and just dig one hole to start with, right? Like you don't want to sell exactly. water bottles and vacuum cleaners and right things that don't, don't complement each other. Dig a hole until it starts to get deep. See that it's cash flow positive. See that it's sustainable business. And then look up and down line, I'll call it, on all the ancillary services and products that can complement that industry. And then diversify your portfolio so that you're getting, you know, we'll call it supply chain, but essentially you're, you're taking both sides of the supply chain and maximizing the opportunities in front of you. That's basically what, what you are saying, right, Curtis? 180%. Yes. It's, it's about digging one hole that works, striking water, right? We know that we have a product that works and then diversifying our product base to make sure it complements our product and then pursuing different industries that we're not used to pursuing. Because at the end of the day, I, I really think that too many people get hung up on, I am a, I'm a startup funder, right? I get hung up that on a lot of the case, right? And I know that I'm developing other products currently that are going to serve other purposes so we can cover much, much wider base of serving more and more people. Well, absolutely. And it, Curtis, a couple of things. You brought up Grant Cardone. I started my career in the car business. Little town, northern Ohio. If you've ever seen Shawshank Redemption, the movie, that's the town I grew up in. It's where that movie was shot at. And got out of college, got out of college, got in the car business. 
And Grant Cardone back then flew to our small town. I mean, flew to a big town and then drove to our small town to hold a sales training, right? And Grant was, as you know, Grant, as you're listening, you probably don't even know this existed in his repertoire. But like, there were two guys in the car business that were the quote unquote trainers. One guy whose name was Joe Verdi. The other guy's name was Grant Cardone. And the car business was booming in 2005, 2006, 2000, right? I mean, early 2000s, all the way till the, you know, 2008 hits. Maybe not quite so good. Right. And then, you know, Curtis is sharing that because Curtis, you actually were on what you're, I don't say, can I say you're friends with Grant? Like you've been on Grant's show before. You, you, you spent some intimate time with Grant. Yeah. I've been blessed enough to do business with Grant, know him and his family, um, been to his house a few times. So um, I guess we, I, you could consider him strong acquaintances, if not friends. Yeah. And so I, I just love hearing that he shared with you about his, the car business days, where if you Google Grant Cardone car trainer and see some of the really old videos, like it is a whole different version of, you know, <laughs> who he is now. And it's a natural evolution that we all go through as entrepreneurs. Like, I think that's the other thing I know sometimes I get stuck on. It's okay to reinvent yourself. It's okay to grow. Like you're almost supposed to, like you, you and I are not the same people we were five years ago. Not even close. Right. And it's, it's just refreshing to know that there's more people like me because my wife will look at me sometimes like I'm crazy. She's like, you always have this new idea. You always have this new thing. I'm like, well, how can I not? Like we're consistently in motion right on a, on a cellular level. How am I not supposed to be in motion in my business and, and what I want to grow? 180%. It's, uh, I, I think that one of the truest statements that I've heard from people is I, I read a statistic not too long ago, and it said um, highly successful entrepreneurs are 10 times likely to be, um, what was it, obsessed-driven and um, have uh, ups and downs in emotions. And um, I completely agree with that statement. Every successful entrepreneur that I know is obsessed-driven. We obsess over the fact we, frankly, want to help people and do cool things. Cool shit. Yeah. Excuse my friend. No, there um, it's fine. Cool shit is exactly right. Yeah. Well, and that's why I mean I'm a I'm a 35 year old guy that has came from many different industries that now lives on a small island and off the coast of Florida, way out in the middle of the Caribbean. And uh, I truly live a life that every day when I was younger I to wake up to, and I get to do that by serving people. Well, Curtis, I want to talk about that because it wasn't all that long ago that you made the transition from stateside, right? Landlocked here in the U.S. And then I see like a post on Facebook and it's like, hey, by the way, see you guys, I'm moving to Puerto Rico, right? How, how was that transition? What made you make that move? Like, what is it living on an island? I'd love to know more about that personally. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the main reason is uh, it came down to a couple facts. Uh, I got beat up pretty bad one year in Texas, um, like really bad. Uh, in terms of most people to understand that, I could have bought a supercar and a house free and clear of how bad I got beat up in Texas. And I, I made a realization that in I've always wanted to live on the beach. And Puerto Rico has a wonderful tax law here that I'm still a U.S. citizen and I get 4% taxes, which is frankly amazing. I have no capital gains going back. Two in between. And one of the biggest 
the biggest liabilities that you have as a business owner is taxes. So um, I figured my lawyers told me I could either structure things in a whole bunch of um, different types of processes to get away from taxes and spend a bunch of money there, or I could go live in Puerto Rico on a beach. And uh, Puerto Rico won that conversation because I love to fish. And uh, I'm blessed enough to have a wonderful uh, girlfriend. Um, I've been with her for like three or four years now. Very, very happy. We pretty much put all our stuff in a backpack, took our dogs and moved to Puerto Rico. Put all our stuff in storage in Utah where it's super cold. And frankly, it was the best change I've ever made in terms of overall happiness, learning a new culture. And uh, Puerto Rico is a very unique place that I get to surround myself with a ton of very unique entrepreneurs. Well, I'd love to, what, what's some of the biggest lessons or some of the biggest changes? For, there's a chance as you're listening, you haven't ever been to a Caribbean island or maybe even outside the U.S. I know I have some international listeners as well. But to go from being landlocked, right? I mean, Salt Lake City, Utah, if you haven't been there, I love Salt Lake personally. I, it just always, it's beautiful. It's scenic. There's an entrepreneurial scene there. There's a tech scene there. And then right in my mind, Puerto Rico is like 10 years behind the, you know, the, the growth and the evolution and the speed at which things get conducted. And even telecom, right? Some things that we take for granted of great Wi-Fi everywhere and, you know, cellular connectivity. What's some of the things you know, you've noticed after being there for, how long have you been there for now? Um, we've been here now this stint for six months um, yeah. straight. I was here earlier the year before, right after Maria, um, where I was planning on moving, but the island was just not in a position that I wanted to be here. Um, so it, in terms of getting used to living here, um, it's just a different type of lifestyle in terms of, please understand, we all have generators here because the power does go out from time to time and you get used to it. You kind of enjoy it. It, it, it changes you from being in this grind, 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 24 seven, I'm going to kill myself, um, to, Hey, the power's out. Let's go to the beach. You know, um, that was very hard for me to in terms of getting used to living here. Um, it's just a different type of lifestyle in terms of please understand we all have generators here because time and you get used you kind of let's, let's, let's figure out how to make that go away. There we go. So we're live streaming this on Facebook <laughs> real time and I pulled up some of the questions and you just got to hear my microphone sharing uh you know time delay feed. So good good for both of us. <laughs> exactly. Um that was very weird for me to get used to. And you definitely have to get used to island time does exist. Um, Certain things do not get done very fast here. Certain things that you're used to, you can't get here. Like uh, strange things, right? Like I love tangerine Red Bulls. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I enjoy them more than coffee or any of that other stuff. And you can't get them on the island. It's You can't. And you can't even get them shipped here. So whenever people come to visit me, I have them bring one or two tangerine Red Bulls. Weird stuff like that you have to get used to. Um, but at the same time, it it gives you such a cool opportunity and experience to actually create new stuff. Like this island needs so much help and that's why they have the tax benefits to bring in people with money and creativity to, to do cool shit, right? Yeah. So it helps us launch different stuff. Like one of my biggest goals in being down here is this is something I don't talk about, um, but I, I want to start a bank. It's been one of my driving forces my entire life. And anybody that's ever tried to start a bank, it's a huge undertaking. Uh, I can't even describe to you how big it really is. And in terms, if I was 
in the, the, the 50 states right now, I would need $15 million of unencumbered assets, meaning cash, in order to even get a chartered bank. Where in Puerto Rico, I can do that with $500,000. So, and the reason for that is because it's a smaller area, it's a smaller island, they need the help. And I honestly believe you're going to see some of the most creative and unique businesses come out of Puerto Rico for that exact reason. Um, it's going to put it. There's going to be some amazing stuff that's created here that I truly think is going to change a lot of our environments, um, not only in terms of banking, but in terms of lots of stuff in in business, because uh, it's a very entrepreneurial driven society here. One, I, I love that. And I think it's a brilliant acknowledgement to me of how backwards we actually have things in the U.S. And when I say backwards, there's this, as much as I love a Gary Vee, there's this hustle, grind, work your ass off mentality. And I believe that we spend, we've been preconditioned as a society to work your ass off for so long. Then by the time you want to retire, your body's kind of failing you because you've missed out on enjoying life when you had the ability to enjoy it. And as you get into the Puerto Ricos or for me, Costa Rica's or Right, so it was Latin America, South America, some things like that, getting over into Spain and really almost everywhere other than, in my opinion, China, Japan, the UK, and US, like everybody else stops and breathes, right? They have a siesta, they enjoy life, there's not stress, you have a meal where you have conversations and you sit down and you enjoy what's in front of you and you stop worrying so much that you have to, quote unquote, get back to something. It's like, no, just time out, like... But down, down on, you know, Costa Rica, it's Pura Vida, right? Like live the good life, like just be present. And I love if you get the opportunity, right, to maybe not move to Puerto Rico. I mean, I hope so. That's something that speaks to you, but certainly make that trip, right? To see what it's like to experience what Curtis gets to experience on a daily basis is brilliant, right? You, you have to probably, I don't want to put your mouth, but you have to feel better down there, right? Like it's just a better quality of life. I mean, I went through, uh, a huge change and talking about that whole driving yourself to the grindstone. Um, when I started my entrepreneurial journey, I was training Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I competed in the world finals of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I was a much healthier version of what I am now. And over the course of the last five years, I have ground myself down to nothing. And, and in terms that comes because you got to understand when you work 120 hours a week, it wears you out. Like I did that legitimately for four and a half years straight. Every day, my girlfriend would come to my office at 1130 and she would bring food. And she's like, I know you haven't eaten all day. Here, eat this. And uh, that took a lot from me in terms of mental health, in terms of physical health. And one of my biggest changes when coming down here was I had those things structured. I had my systems put in place. So now it's a time to, we work when we work, we hang out when we hang out, and I take better care of my physical body. You know, I'm actually having time to work out, train jiu-jitsu again, and um, my girlfriend's trying to compete for the Olympics right now in judo, and it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a much more happy and, and creative and better existence, and I've made more money doing it this way than I was when I was working 120 hours a week, because it gives you time to work on your business, not in your business. Well, yeah, I forget the, there's a, a psychological principle that exists where when we look at the fact that our work days are eight hours, 
we're able to not squander more time, but when you put more of an extreme time bound, um, you know, bookmark on your day, bookend on your day, most of us could probably get done in four hours what we allow ourselves to take hours, eight hours to do because in the U.S. it's accepted that you're going to work an eight-hour shift or, you know, 10, 12 hours, whatever you want. And you have the influencer culture of, and again, I love Grant, but like be obsessed or be average. Like, cool, I can be obsessed, but I can be hyper-obsessed for four and a half hours. And then don't be hyper-obsessed with my family and my wife and the things that go on at home for the rest of the time and still get really everything done. Like, and enjoy life. You know, heart rate variability drops and the things that are key performance indicators as far as mental health and longevity and biohacking, all that just recenters. And it's like, man, I feel like we're just, we're missing out with a consistent need to quote unquote, have more. You can have more and you can have, to me, have it all, whatever it all is to you. And again, I want a private plane. I want a Rolls Royce. I want all the great stuff. But I sure as shit don't want to admit, like Tim Ferriss in the four-hour work week completely changed my perception of what reality really is. Of like, why do I want to wait until I'm 65 to start enjoying stuff? Like, let's just take some deep breaths now and ah, so I don't have a couple million bucks in the bank. But man, it's great to live today. Like I'm 35. I want to I want to I wanna live now. Yeah, amen. I uh I had a unique experience in Las Vegas, Nevada, where a whole bunch of people ended up dying on a very bad day. Um, that I was stuck in that hotel. Um, and that, that changed my life forever. Um, in terms of talk about mental shift, you want to, if you were ever, if you were ever have to experience that first off and foremost, I, I hope no one ever does because it's terrible. Um, so I, when that hit and when that happened, I was locked down in the Mandalay Bay for 28 hours and it was crappy. But it made me make a hard mental right. And that hard mental right was, dude, I've got a bunch of money in the bank. Um, I've helped a lot of people. I don't even own a car. And I walk to work every day and I live in a one-bedroom apartment because I'm a minimalist. I'm not a guy. I don't want a Rolls Royce. I don't want a Rolex. I don't want a plane ever. Um, I want a canoe and a fishing rod, right? Um, I want an amazing dog that's underneath my desk right now that you guys could see, but um, I want those things in life, right? And I want I want my life to, to, to produce revenue so I can afford the life that I want to live. And I've been blessed enough to be able to do that before I, I'm 35. I'm 34 right now, and I've hit every... If I truly choose to, to could legitimately retire for the rest of my life. And I can't express to people how amazing that feels as an individual, but taking that mind shift of exactly what you're saying, there's eight hours in a, in a work schedule. The true fact is for 95% of people, they really do legitimately work three to four hours a day because the rest of the time they're, they're, they're doing non-essential tasks, right? And when I work here, when I'm setting down, I'm doing essential tasks to my business, getting them done and getting them out of the way. And that's what most of the people that I've met here in Puerto Rico are all about. Um, if, uh, if, do you know who like uh, John Lee is? Yeah. The Entrepreneurs on Fire guy? Yeah, yeah. John Lee Dumas, yep. He's my, yeah, he's my neighbor down here. And uh, one of the coolest things I've realized about that dude is he only works eight hours a month at most because he jam packs all his stuff in eight hours 
and it, it, it and gets it done, records everything. Maybe – I think it was like eight days or something, but he just jams it all out, gets it all done, and the rest of the time they travel and go do these amazing things. And it's really helped me make a super positive change in my life of structuring time to get business done and structuring time to get fun done and enjoy what this beautiful planet is and what Puerto Rico has to offer and what Utah has to offer and all those amazing things. Um, and I truly hope that everybody gets to experience, whether you call it balance, whether you call it inner peace, freedom, whatever it is to you, I hope that every person alive gets to experience that preferably when they're young. So they're not so beat up and torn up like most Americans that are 65 and can't retire. Um, and uh, I hope everybody gets to enjoy that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and Curtis, I'd, I'd love to put a, put a bow on this episode with number one, how can people get a hold of you? How can they reach out to you? If you're a business owner, or you're thinking about jumping into business and you need some funding, what are the best ways for people to reach out to you? So the easiest way, um, our webpage obviously uh, has tons of great information, uh, LendingAmericaLLC.com. Um, our phone number's on there, 801-312-9099. My staff is extremely helpful. Um, feel free as well, if anybody would like to personally add me on Facebook, that's my only social source. I'm not an Instagram guy, not a YouTube guy. I uh, take very good care of my Facebook and I give lots of free information on there for no other purpose, just to help individuals. Um, and my name's Curtis Nally. Those would be the three areas to, to get in contact with our business. And if you want to talk to me directly, the best way would be to try to connect with me through Facebook and then uh, send me a message, which my team would filter through, and then we could probably schedule an appointment. Perfect. And, and as you were listening, if you press pause now, go to the show notes, no matter where you're listening to this episode at, you're going to have everything that Curtis just shared, one click, to, to call the number, one click to see the website. You'll probably even add one click to make sure if you want to connect with Curtis on Facebook, we'll make that happen as well. And then in addition to that, Curtis, if we're going to leave this with, with one pearl of wisdom, right? We started out with it, whatever your startup business should know. Let's on the backside, let's talk about life, right? You've lived a lot of life. What's, what's one little life lesson that everybody should walk away from remembering that you shared with them? One life lesson. Hmm. I would say... The goal of life is to help other people and uplift other people on their journey because it feeds so much into yourself. Um, the goal of life is to progress naturally as a human being and to get better, to form perfect versions of ourselves. But I believe the only way to perform the best version of ourselves is through seeing it through other people's eyes and uplifting the people that we're responsible for around us. Um, people that are successful, I think we have uh, direct obligations to help everybody um, because we've been blessed tremendously uh, to have the opportunities that we have. Um, so that would be, I guess, my pearl of wisdom is find those things in your life, um, benefit and uplift other people because it will all come full circle and will feed back into you being a much better version of yourself. And brother, I appreciate you, the knowledge that you shared and literally just getting to hang out with you for however long this has been. This has been a lot of fun. I, I sincerely appreciate you making time in your, in your schedule in your day and, and sharing the wisdom you shared with us all. Yeah, I thank you so much for your time. And if anybody does go to our website and fill out any applications, please put 15 Minutes to Freedom in the referral partner section. So that way we can track and make sure that we benefit you uh, for letting us come on this podcast, spending time with you, and 
I greatly appreciate getting reconnect with you. And hopefully, if you ever make it down to Puerto Rico, brother, mi casa es su casa. I will certainly look you up. Thanks again, Curtis. Yeah, take care.